Well, the parables keep coming, and they don't get any easier, do they? Jesus is in a parable-telling sort of mood in this section of the Gospel of Luke, offering one of these strange and puzzling stories after another. Last Sunday, we spent some time with an unusually baffling parable about a steward who reduced the debts of a number of people who owed something to his boss. We puzzled about that one together, about its complex characters behaving in unexpected ways and its odd chain of events. That parable was hard because it was hard to make sense of, hard to connect with. And our parable today is hard as well, but for a totally different reason. Today's parable is hard because it is so totally and absolutely clear. There's no question about who's the good guy and the bad guy in this story. On the one side, there's Lazarus, a beggar with nothing, wishing even for any small thing to satisfy his hunger and his suffering. On the other side, there's the rich man, a wealthy person with everything he could possibly want, lacking nothing. One lives in abject need and the other in lavish comfort, and in the afterlife, the tables are turned. It's about as clear as it gets, don't you think? There's no question here about where Jesus' sympathies lie. His concern is for the poor, for those who are without comfort in this life. So for those of us basically living comfortable, prosperous lives, this parable is a hard one. It forces us to ask uncomfortable questions. What will we do with this crystal clear story? What effect will we allow it to have on us today? Before we get there, I do think it helps to take a step back and ask what this parable is at its heart. Is it a sort of blueprint of the afterlife? Is it a straightforward tirade against wealth? Or is it sort of something else? Lots of readers through history have focused on the afterlife dimension of this parable, and it's not hard to see why. Most of the action takes place after the two characters have died, and the descriptions of Hades as a place of torment and flames, and the alternative as a place of security and comfort in Abraham's embrace are as vivid as any in the Bible. So is Jesus telling us this story to talk about what's waiting after death? Luther and his contemporaries wrote detailed arguments back and forth about just what Abraham's bosom represents and about where it's located and about who ends up there and whether it's some sort of interim place, maybe a little like purgatory, where people wait before the resurrection. You can go down all sorts of theological rabbit holes there. And while that might have been a pressing issue 500 years ago, it feels pretty far from the sorts of concerns Jesus generally speaks about. So I'm not so sure he's giving us a roadmap of heaven and hell and everything in between. That is one way this passage has been read. You can also see it as a sort of unyielding and uncompromising argument against wealth and those who have it. Full stop. Like I said, I don't think there's any ambiguity at all about where Jesus' sympathies lie. He's deeply concerned about those who are left in need at the gates of the rich. But if there is nothing more to his words than blessings for some and curses for others, that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for us to act, to be changed and called to something new. There is another option, and I find it a helpful one for hearing this parable today and letting it sink in 
and do its work in our lives. And that's to read it as an apocalypse. I know that is a loaded word. In popular use, and even if you look it up in the dictionary, it tends to mean something like doom and gloom and everything in between. We think of an apocalypse as the worst possible thing that can happen, but that's not what it means in the Bible, not at all. Apocalyptic literature is a specific kind of writing with specific characteristics. It's typically characterized by fantastic imagery, often of the afterlife, and by extreme contrasts between good and evil. It's meant to be revealing in some way, to pull back a veil and show some deeper truth hidden behind the ordinary circumstances of daily life. That's what the Greek word apocalypse means, in fact, an uncovering or revealing. And New Testament scholar Barbara Rossing, who's an expert on apocalyptic literature in the Bible, says that this particular parable fits the form. An apocalypse serves as a wake-up call, she says, pulling back a curtain to open our eyes to something we urgently need to see before it's too late. So what's the deeper reality that's being revealed here? I think it has to do with that chasm. Between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, Abraham says to the rich man, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. The distance is, of course, vividly depicted in the description. The rich man is thirsty and in agony in the flames of Hades, and Lazarus is secure in Abraham's care, lacking nothing. The two are as far apart as can be. You can't miss the contrast. The chasm was there in life as well, of course, just the other way around. The rich man was dressed in the finest clothes. He lived in some sort of palace with a gate out front. He feasted daily. Even occasional feasting would have marked him as a person of means, but to be sort of holding banquets every day shows just how decadent his lifestyle was. Lazarus, by contrast, was dressed in rags, lived on the street, and wished for even crumbs to satisfy his hunger. The two were as far apart as could be. You couldn't miss the contrast. Except it seems that the rich man did. Though their lives were lived in close proximity, the rich man showed no awareness of the desperate situation of his neighbor. He did nothing to help him in life. And even in death, did you notice this? Even in death, he sees Lazarus not as an equal, but as somebody he can use, somebody he can order around and sort of send on errands for him. Hey, Abraham, he calls out, tell Lazarus to get me a drink. Send him to warn my brothers. The chasm was always there. It's just that the rich man didn't see it. Wealth has that effect, of course. It's just as true in the 21st century as it was in the first. The more we have, the more isolated we can become from the needs of others. You know what I mean, right? With greater resources, we can move into communities where poverty is less visible. We can avoid going to those kinds of neighborhoods. We can become increasingly isolated in self-sufficiency, in never needing to ask for help, to the point that poverty becomes something distant and remote something we don't encounter or notice or have to think about. Jesus' parable means to pull back the veil on that chasm. It means to help us notice the distance between our feasting and the fasting of others. 
between our abundance and others' need. We may not see that chasm much of the time, but make no mistake, it's there. And Jesus means for us to be concerned about it. We had our own apocalypse of this sort in Geneva a couple of years ago. The pandemic revealed all sorts of things around the world, of course, about how interconnected our world is, about the vast disparities that exist when it comes to access to health care, about our capacity as people both for solidarity and for isolation and greed. And here in Geneva, we caught a glimpse of just how many people actually live on the edge, how many struggle to make ends meet. A number of local organizations teamed up to offer simple bags of food free of charge during the early days of the lockdown. Some members of our congregation were part of that effort. And for many of us, the response was shocking. As you might remember, the food distribution was taking place at the hockey arena, and there were enormous numbers of people standing in a line wrapping around the outside of the building. I remember reports of 1,600 people standing there on the early days of the distribution. People started queuing at 5 a.m., hours before the center opened, waiting in the cold for 20 francs worth of groceries. All of this here in one of the wealthiest cities in the world, where luxury goods are advertised practically everywhere you look. The chasm was there before, of course, but for many of us going about our basically comfortable lives, it was largely invisible. And then for a moment, it wasn't. For a moment, it was there for everyone to see, to see just how many people are in need right here. That's what an apocalypse can do. I don't think Jesus' parable is there to help us speculate about the geography of the afterlife today. And I don't think it's there simply to curse the wealthy. I think it's there to pull back a curtain and open our eyes to something we urgently need to see before it's too late. I think it's there to help us see the chasms in our world, in our city, in the communities that we come from, right there in front of us, here and now. How can I share what I have with those who have less? How can our community stand up for those who are struggling to make ends meet, those who are too often left invisible? What can we do to help shrink that chasm? I don't know all the answers, of course, but those are the sorts of questions I think this parable must push us toward. And that way, you know, we are really in the position of those five siblings of the rich man. Because we have what we need. We have the law and the prophets telling us again and again that life is about a just sharing of resources. We have the stories of manna in the wilderness where hoarding is impossible, where there's enough for each and for all. We have the example of Jesus living out that alternative economy in radically inclusive ways. We have the water that claims us as God's own, the bread that touches our deepest hunger, the word that reminds us again and again that we are deeply loved. We have enough. And for us, it's not too late. We can still do something about the disparities around us. We have enough, friends. So how will we respond? Amen. <laughs>